0: Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. This podcast is designed for medical students that are on their ob clerkship. We cover the APCO learning objectives, which can be found at www.apco.org backslash students. Today we'll be covering topic number 55, ovarian neoplasms. Our guest for today is Dr. Josh Kesterson. He's a GYN oncologist here at the Hershey Medical Center, Penn State College of Medicine, and we're thrilled to have him here to discuss this. If you guys wanted to follow along, you can read more about this in Chapter 50 of the 8th edition of Beckman & Ling Obstetrics and Gynecology, which can be found through your George T. Harrow Library website. With that, let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Kesterson.
1: Thank you for having me, Dr.
0: Wright. All right, we'll do this by reading through a case, and then I'll ask you some questions. So we have a 48-year-old G3P3 who's coming to the office for a health checkup. She had three normal vaginal deliveries and did have a tubal ligation after the birth of her last child. She has no history of abnormal pap tests. She has never had any sexually transmitted infections. Her cycles are regular, and her LMP was 18 days ago. Her family history is significant for a maternal aunt who was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at age 60. On exam, she has normal vital sounds, a normal heart, lung, and abdominal exam. On pelvic exam, she has a normal external genitalia, vagina, and cervix. On bimanual exam, she has a slightly enlarged uterus and a palpable 6 cm six mobile, non-tender right adnexal mass, which is confirmed on the rectovaginal exam. My first question for you, Dr. Is, Kesserson, is based on this presentation, what is your next step in management for this patient?
1: Great. Thank you. So I think with a patient uh, presenting as such, one of the first things you want to do is uh, take an accurate and complete history and physical. Uh, some of the things that I highlight on that history include the patient's menstrual status, uh, with the thought being that if you're pre-menarchal or postmenopausal, then you don't have Active ovarian function. Therefore, you can't really have a functional ovarian cyst, and so that would increase your level of suspicion. The other things that I would like to know about are the patient's symptoms. Is she having associated uh, GYN symptoms, or is she having more non specific type of symptoms, or is she asymptomatic? Another thing I'd like to ask about is any family history. We know that about a quarter of all Ovarian cancers are related to a genetic predisposition, the most common of those being a BRCA mutation. So those patients would be at increased risk for breast and ovarian cancer. So I make a point to inquire about those in the family history. For a patient who presents with a palpable adnexal mass, I would like to further characterize that mass. One of the ways that we can do so is with a pelvic ultrasound. Ultrasound is beneficial in that it is non-invasive, and it can assess the characteristics of the adnexal mass. Uh, Some of the more favorable characteristics would be smooth, simple contours without hypervascularity and without any associated ascites. Contrary to that would be um, worrisome factors such as an irregular border, heterogeneity within the uh, internal component of the cyst and if that cyst was fixed or associated with ascites or fluid in the peritoneal cavity. Another thing that I would use uh, to try and better assess the um, adnexal mass would be to check a CA-125. A CA-125 is a tumor marker that is relatively sensitive if not specific but I think combined with the other findings on exam as well as imaging This can help us better narrow down our differential diagnosis. Other tumor markers to consider are a CEA, an AFP, an LDH, and a beta-HCG.
0: Would your approach be any different if this patient were postmenopausal at, say, age 62?
1: Yes, Dr. Wright. I think my approach would be different in that anybody who is now postmenopausal with non-functioning ovaries is not going to have a functional ovarian cyst. And so what that would do is heighten my suspicion of an ovarian neoplasm or ovarian malignancy.
0: Got it. Um, So for this patient, we got an ultrasound. It does show that the cyst is, in fact, six centimeters. But they describe it as a complex cyst. What is your differential diagnosis now? I guess we can really think of these as um, benign and malignant. But what would be some of the benign reasons for this?
1: Right. That's how I usually uh, categorize uh, the um, different etiologies uh, for an adnexal mass into benign and malignant categories. Uh, Benign etiologies would include a functional cyst, whether it be a follicular cyst, a corpus luteal cyst, or a thecaludian cyst. Uh, This is going to be associated with uh, active uh, ovaries. Um, Other benign causes of an adnexal mass include an endometrioma, a tubo ovarian abscess, a seromucinous Cystadenoma, a gonadal stromal tumor like a fibroma or a thecoma, or a germ cell tumor like a teratoma. Malignant categories uh, would include an epithelial ovarian cancer such as a serous, mucinous, or clear cell tumor. Uh, other etiologies would include uh, ovarian malignancies such as a germ cell tumor or a sex cord stromal tumor. Uh, these are uh, less common than the Epithelial surface ovarian cancers.
0: So, this you you talked a little bit about risk factors before, but what risk factors does this particular patient have for ovarian cancer?
1: Right. When I think about epithelial ovarian cancer, I think about a um, tumor or cancer arising on the surface of the ovary. And the uh, overlying theorem or the underlying theorem of, of why these tumors develop is uh, repetitive uh, or incessant ovulation uh, with a uh, repair of that ovulatory site that ultimately uh, leads to uh, DNA damage that is uh, transmitted and uh, tumorigenesis. So if we think about incessant ovulation as being the underlying etiology as we understand it, anything that is going to decrease your ovulatory cycles will decrease your risk of of ovarian cancer. This includes pregnancy and Breastfeeding and birth control pills. Uh, risk factors for ovarian cancer uh, include uh, two main ones that I think of, and that being age. Uh, so, ovarian cancer usually presents uh, in postmenopausal women in their uh, sixth and seventh decade of life. And then I think about a genetic predisposition, most commonly a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation that places uh, that patient and family members at an increased risk of breast and ovarian cancer.
0: What are some of the elements on the history and physical exam that would help support the diagnosis of ovarian cancer?
1: Thank you, Tanya. That's a good question uh, because with ovarian cancer, unfortunately a majority of cases are diagnosed at an advanced stage, and this is secondary to several factors, Uh, one of those being a lack of effective screening as well as a lack of specific ovarian-based symptoms. So when patients uh, present with advanced stage ovarian cancer, their most common symptoms are actually non gwin related and that includes abdominal bloating or discomfort, gastrointestinal disturbances, increased abdominal girth, or urinary symptoms including uh, frequency and um, dysuria, uh, often thought to be secondary to an ovarian mass or ascites, pressing on the bladder, uh, increasing urinary frequency or discomfort. Other symptoms include what we call early satiety, uh, whereby the patient uh, feels full after eating quicker than they previously did. This is uh, thought to be secondary to the ascites or malignant fluid in the belly and or presence of a tumor near or on the stomach. Um, that, uh, those symptoms are most consistent with a patient presenting with advanced stage epithelial ovarian cancer. Um, less common types of ovarian cancer include germ cell and sex cord stromal, which may present differently. Uh, they, those patients may present with acute pain, or they may present with a hemoperitoneum, which is blood in the uh, peritoneal cavity.
0: Um, so if a patient is diagnosed with ovarian cancer, then what would be the modalities of treatment?
1: So when we think about epithelial ovarian cancer, like we mentioned, a majority of cases are going to be diagnosed in an advanced stage. That would be stage three or four, implying that the tumor has extended beyond the ovary, most often to the abdominal and and or thoracic cavities. This may involve the omentum, this may involve the peritoneal surfaces, this may involve the liver, uh, the pleura, and or distant sites of metastases. So when we think about a patient with advanced stage disease, we think about uh, two modalities primarily of initial therapy, that being surgery and chemotherapy. Uh, Surgery uh, consists of what we call a cytoreductive attempt, uh, whereby all macroscopic or grossly visible disease is removed uh, in surgery, followed by what we call adjuvant chemotherapy. Chemotherapy usually consists of a uh, combinational approach of two different uh, chemotherapy agents with different mechanisms of action, The most common prescribed adjuvant therapy would be a combination of carboplatin and paclitaxel, two cytotoxic chemotherapies given either interperitoneally or intravenously. The most common route of administration for these drugs would be intravenous, given every three weeks for six cycles.
0: Excellent. Dr. Keses, and I can't thank you enough for being here with us and reviewing this topic. Um, Thank you guys for listening. We hope to have you back again.